We'll be reading from the message, Matthew seven twenty four through 29. These words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life, homeowners' improvements to your standards of living. They are fundamental words, words to build a life on. If you work these words into your life, you are like a smart carpenter who built his house on solid rock. Rain poured down, the river flooded, a tornado hit, but nothing moved to that but nothing moved to that house. It was fixed to the rock. But if you just use my words in Bible studies and don't work them into your life, you're like a stupid carpenter who built his house on the sandy beach. When a storm rolled in and the waves came up, it collapsed like a house of cards. When Jesus concluded his address, the crowd burst into applause. They had never heard teaching like this. It was apparent that he was living everything he was saying, quite a contrast to their religion teacher. This was the best teaching they had ever heard. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 to 6. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not last after evil things as they also lasted. Now all these things happen unto them for example, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the end of the world are come. Wherefore, let them that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. There have no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer to let you be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. I want to preface my comments this morning by uh, giving thanks to Elder Rick Rothler and to Peter Thornburg for covering last week. It is a blessing to have a former pastor in the congregation who can help with so many things and to have capable elders who are able to uh, speak as I must be gone from time to time. So thank you, gentlemen. Would also uh, like to preface my comments by noting that I am not an Egyptologist, but I have a few notes along those lines that if you know more than I do, I commend you and simply ask that you bear with me. If you know less, uh, try not to take my word for everything and do a little research of your own. It won't kill you. And on that note... Egyptology continues to grow as a field, so it's very possible that today's information is tomorrow's garbage. And that means that archaeology and new discoveries and new theories are being put forth all the time. It makes it rough to uh, uh, actually work with some of the biblical portions that correspond uh, to 
uh, Egyptology and, and makes it very interesting as well. So there's a little commercial for you. We left off with Joseph. We left off with the death of Joseph two weeks ago in the series uh, in which I'm hoping you'll find inspiration to get back to Scripture and the stories of Scripture. If you have already graduated from 101 or 201, that you'll pursue 301 and 401 in your biblical education. Uh, And if you haven't spent much time in Scripture, that these stories will drive you to the Scriptures, that you might learn the great stories and the ways in which they inform us, not just about how we might live, but about the God we serve and the grace that has come to us in all of history. Joseph lives at an interesting and unique time. Uh, There's been speculation about whether Joseph was a real character. Of course, we wouldn't accept that speculation. We would understand the historical accuracy of Scripture to be very high. We would understand the Scriptures uh, to be accurate in these ways. We would understand this not just to be mythological narrative, but the telling of a people's history. And so, Adventists and Christians have long taken very seriously the story of Joseph in Egypt, but there's not a lot of, or up till now, not a lot of archaeological and other evidence regarding Joseph. Interesting reasons why. Joseph is, first of all, an import. But about the time Joseph gets to Egypt, and and I don't think there are precise dates that we can know for sure available. Uh, I may be corrected on that. But it's in the 19th century, roughly, A.D., 1800s A.D. somewhere, where Joseph arrives in Egypt. And about that time, it was known as the Pre-Hyksos period. It's not the earliest dynasties in Egypt, but a foreign power has come in, or has migrated there, living along the Nile Delta, and they are Shemitic peoples. They are not Egyptians. And they grow and seize control, and part of the growth of Israel in its time in Egypt and part of Joseph's time there takes place in this Hyksos period. And Hyksos means foreign ruler, basically. So, That period of time is where we leave off, and then there's a period of great expansion. The Bible doesn't give it a lot of verses, but it tells us that the people of Israel grew numerically, very rapidly. Their population exploded, and they became a concern as a Pharaoh who knew Joseph not, is the way the scripture puts it, comes into power. The Hyksos were kicked out, the Egyptians took back over, and said, we've got to do something about these non-Egyptians who have been so friendly with the Hyksos. And the Israelites are made slaves, and so forth. About the time we get to Moses, they are thoroughly enslaved. And a long period of time has gone by between Joseph and Moses. Israel is oppressed with hard labor, And they are oppressed with a mandate that all the boy babies should be killed. The Egyptian midwives have been ordered to do this. The Hebrew midwives have been ordered to do this. And Pharaoh is thwarted on every level by women. 
It's an interesting civil disobedience. The mothers refuse to destroy their babies. The midwives refuse to destroy their babies. And even Pharaoh's own daughter, who may have been a very famous woman, adopts a Hebrew baby and hires that baby's own natural mother to raise it. Moses is a clever wordplay. Have you heard of Tutmos, King Tutmos? Most of you have. The last part of that name is the same name given to Moses. Moses is a clever Hebrew play on that Egyptian word. Mos, tutmos means literally to be born. But Moses means to be brought out and hints at the deliverance themes that we've been talking about. It hints at what God has in mind for his leader and for this person. Well, because it is such a famous story, I'm not going to spend hardly any time on the story of how Moses survives, is three months old, placed in a basket, picked up by Pharaoh's daughter, given back to Pharaoh uh, to his own mother to be nursed and raised until he is of age, or twelve, taken into Pharaoh's courts and educated in all the ways of the land and made a prince. That's a very abbreviated version. Most everybody knows that part of the story. There's a lot more going on if you're willing to give it a little time and study. Moses, knowing who he is as a Hebrew, makes some strategic errors. Observing a slave master beating a Hebrew one day, he takes on the slave master. Being trained in all of the arts of war, he overcomes him quickly and excessively and manages to kill him. And the next day, when he finds out that his secret is known, decides to flee and ends up in Midian, a land far away where he ends up tending sheep and marrying the daughter of a priest there. Moses' story will unfold as one who is called by God to go back before the Pharaoh and demand that Pharaoh free the people. Literally, if we read the story of Exodus, you don't get to anything until about chapter 12 of the Exodus because the story unfolds with the plagues that are introduced into Egypt and the way in which it says half the time God hardens Pharaoh's heart and the other half the time Pharaoh hardens his heart and does not let the people go. Jewish feasts like Passover, which are world famous, emerge from this period of the Exodus. Now what I haven't uh, shared is very interesting because about the time of Moses, or at least if we accept the date 1450 BC roughly as a time for the Exodus or Moses' time, you have interesting things happening in Egypt. Actually, I'm wrong. I'm a, a decade off, excuse me, a century off, 1350 roughly. Egypt during the New Kingdom, the cult of the sun god Ra became increasingly important until it evolved to the uncompromising monotheism of Pharaoh Akhenaten, or Amenhotep IV. Many of you have heard of him, uh, 14th century uh, BC character. 
According to the cult, Ra, who is the sun god, created himself from a primeval mound in the shape of a pyramid and then created all the other gods. Thus, Ra was not only the sun god, he was also the universe, having created himself from himself. And Ra was invoked as Aten, or the great disk that illuminated the world of the living and the dead. Another interesting correspondence there to uh, our own notions of creation. The effect of these doctrines can be seen in the sun worship of Pharaoh Akhenaten, who became an uncompromising monotheist. It has been speculated that monotheism was Akhenaten's own idea, the result of regarding Aten as self-created heavenly king whose son Pharaoh was also unique. Akhenaten made Aten the supreme state god, symbolized as a rayed disc with each sunbeam ending in a ministering hand. Other gods were abolished, their images smashed, their names excised, their temples abandoned, and their revenues impounded. The plural word for god was suppressed. Sometime in the fifth or sixth year of his reign, Akhenaten moved his capital to a new city called Akhenaten. Today, Tel Ahamarana also seen as, well, Telamarna, basically. At that time, the pharaoh, previously known as Amenhotep IV, adopted the name Akhenaten. His wife, Queen Nefertiti, shared his beliefs. So that's uh, from a, a source, a little bit about this period of time. There are others who say that, that the move to monotheism was not in isolation. And I want to just present two ideas to you. The first massively predates this. Let's go back to the time of Joseph. We recognize that the patriarchal age, and when we read Genesis, we often refer, we often find the word gods, G-O-D-S, small s, small g. There is a creator god, but there is also a sort of recognition, if you will, of lesser gods, or there's at least the presence of them. But we find that language eliminated as we move forward through Scripture. And it's very possible that Joseph's monotheism, his faith in a living and true God, may have influenced Egypt in some very special ways. Recall that he married the daughter of a priest of the sun god. So it's speculative but it's interesting to ask ourselves what kind of effect faith in God might have had on history and on the developments in ancient Egypt. By the time we get to Moses' time, there are those who theorize that Moses was influenced by Akhenaten. I'm not here to say. I can only say that we have the statement of the Shema in Deuteronomy 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God the Lord is one. And from then on, there can be no other. So just a little background, a little uh, 301, a little 401 for those of you who might have been interested. Today I'm going to focus on the end of Moses' life because we will be here until 2014 if I take all the stories that take place in the life of Moses and read those to you and tease those out for you and spell them out for you, you must engage scripture for yourself. You must. But I'm going to take time to read something that we don't often read 
or often think about. We tell it usually in a truncated and abbreviated manner that doesn't do justice either to the God who loved Moses or to Moses himself. We get to the end of Moses' life and the typical cap is to say, and Moses had to die on Mount Nebo because he had struck the rock and disobeyed God and dishonored God before the people and wasn't allowed to go into Israel the end. And then if we know something about Jude, we throw in a footnote and we note that he was raised from the dead and taken to heaven and we see him later at the transfiguration with Elijah and Christ. Right? Those of you who are familiar? But there's so much more happening. As Moses nears the end, God appears to him and tells him that he is about to die and reveals to Moses the future unfaithfulness of Israel in very graphic detail. Moses is heartbroken as he was when he smashed the commandments the first time. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 31. Verse 14. You'll see what I'm speaking of. The Lord said to Moses, Now the day of your death is near. Call Joshua and present yourselves at the tent of the meeting where I will commission him. So Moses and Joshua came and presented themselves at the tent of the meeting. Then the Lord appeared at the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the cloud stood over the entrance of the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, You are going to rest with your fathers, and these people will soon prostitute themselves to foreign gods of the land they are entering. And God goes on to speak to Moses what will be. So Moses gathers Israel and makes this final plea. Verse 30. Moses recited the words of this song from the beginning to end in the hearing of the whole assembly of Israel. I don't know how they accomplished this, by the way. I'm not aware of any natural or man-made amphitheater that could have begun to have the acoustics that would allow this many people to hear the word of Moses. I just don't know how this was accomplished. But Moses gathers, and I'm going to say he sang. And the reason I'm going to say he sang is because it's called a song, and poetry is often a song in word, isn't it? Have you ever thought much about the meter, the, the, the canter of a word, the way in which words go together in prose? the way we raise and lower our voices in inflection, the way in which our language doesn't sound much like a song. Mandarin sounds much more songish. Other languages have more of a song sound. But Moses sings this poem at the edge of the end of his life. And if I can read it well, I'd like you to listen and see if you hear the concerns of God for a people. Listen, O heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching fall like rain, and my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plains. 
I will proclaim the name of the Lord. O praise the greatness of our God. He is our rock. His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. They have acted corruptly toward him. To their shame, they are no longer his children, but a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? Remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your father and he will tell you, your elders, and they will explain to you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted inheritance. In a desert land he found him, in barren and howling waste, He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions. The Lord alone led him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the heights of the land and fed him with the fruit of the fields. He nourished him with honey from the rock and with oil from the flinty crag with curds of milk from herd and flock, and with fattened lambs and goats, with choice rams of Bashan and the finest kernels of wheat, you drank the foaming blood of the grape. Jeshuran grew fat and kicked. Filled with food, he became heavy and sleek. He abandoned the God who made him. And Jeshuran means the upright one. It's a symbol of Israel. He abandoned the God who made him and rejected the rock, his savior. They made him jealous with their foreign gods. By the way, you realize we're reading Old Testament, the rock, his savior. Isn't that what we think of in terms of Jesus? They made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to demons which are not God, gods they had not known, gods that recently appeared, gods your fathers did not fear. You deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw this and rejected them because he was angered by his sons and daughters. I will hide my face from them, he said. And see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, a children who are unfaithful. They made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. I will make them envious by those who are not a people, and I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. Paul quotes these words in Romans 10. For a fire has been kindled by my wrath, one that burns to the realm of death below. I will devour the earth and its harvests and set afire the foundations of mountains. I will heap calamities upon them and spend my arrows against them. I will send wasting famine against them, consuming pestilence and deadly plague. 
I will send against them the fangs of the wild beasts, the venom of vipers that glide in the dust. In the street, the sword will make them childless. In their homes, terror will reign. Young men and young women will perish, infants and gray-haired men. I said I would scatter them and blot out their memory from mankind, but I dreaded the taunt of the enemy lest the adversary misunderstand and say, Our hand has triumphed. The Lord has not done all this. They are a nation without sense. There is no discernment in them. If only they would be wise and understand this and discern what their end will be, how could one man chase a thousand or put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them, unless the Lord had given them up? For their rock is not like our rock, as even our enemies concede. Their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are filled with poison and their clusters with bitterness. Their wine is the venom of serpents and the deadly poison of cobras. Have I not kept this in reserve and sealed it in my vaults? It is mine to avenge. I will repay. In due time their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near and their doom rushes upon me, upon them. The Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees their strength is gone and no one is left slave or free. He will say, now where are their gods? The rock they took refuge in. The gods who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their offerings. Let them rise up to help you. Let them give you shelter. See now that I myself am he. There is no God beside me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. I lift my hand to heaven and declare as surely as I live forever when I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasps it in judgment. I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood while my sword devours flesh, the blood of the stain and the captives of the heads of the enemy leaders. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for this land and people. Sounds like a very difficult opera to sing. I, in English, don't detect a meter or a rhythm or a stanza or a verse. It makes some of our most complex hymns, and I know some of you have complained about those, easy by comparison. And Moses sang. And in his song, I want you to hear these things. Declaration of the supremacy of the one who is God, the rock, capital R, of our salvation. Number two, clarity about the goodness of the Lord who makes everything and forms it with his hands 
who has hovered over his people and sheltered them and loved them and provided for them in every way possible in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of desert, in the midst of no provision he has provided. This is a God who has favored, who has spoken, who has honored This is a God who is given. And the people turn away their eyes and chase after that which is meaningless and false, that which is trivial, that which is foreign, that which is novel or new, and they ignore the gifts and the commands of their God. Three, judgment, we can understand multiple ways, but I would frame it this morning as inevitable. Whether we want to see it as a consequence of what Israel does or what we do, or if we want to see it as the work of God's own hand, there's evidence in Scripture for both. But as Israel wanders, God cries after them and seeks to redeem them, even in his acts of justice. And Moses, at the end of his life, will remind God's people again that they are his and that God alone is God. No one can take him on. No one can detain him. No one can stop him. No one can command him. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God is one. And with this song, Moses speaks to Israel. He goes with Joshua. And he says this, Take heart to all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. They are not just idle words for you, they are your life. By them you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. And Moses goes and dies on Mount Nebo. This is the blessing that Moses, the man of God, pronounced on the Israelites before his death. And I'm not going to read it. It's very long. But the story is more complex than we've thought from our childhood books. Moses is told what will be. He doesn't resist. He doesn't fight. He doesn't cry. He climbs the mountain and he blesses God's people tribe by tribe, area by area. And he lays down and joins, is gathered up to his fathers, as the text says, as Aaron was gathered up to his fathers. I love the imagery of this. I love the power of this. Because in the story, 
we see concluding the grace of God. It is a God who starts what he finishes because it's a God who not only calls Moses from a burning bush, a troubled man who has difficulty accepting God's call in his life. Sounds like a lot of us, I think. To one whom he makes into a great leader and honors. And Moses is not to be judged harshly. He is one of the greatest prophets of all time. One of the greatest leaders of all time. One of the truest servants of all time. So many, many times standing between God and the people saying, if you must take them, take me also. And God will not leave him. God will take him. We read in Jude. In fact, God and the devil have a little argument over Moses. And God will not argue with the devil. He simply takes him. Very interesting. So, I have given you in a song a life of one who preaches a gospel that is alive and well today. A gospel worth heeding. And I'm going to finish fleshing that out with the text that were read today as we look at the meaning of some of this. Time and time again in Deuteronomy, we find the rock referred to, the rock of our salvation, the rock that is the foundation. And if we go to Matthew, we see Jesus picking up on this theme as Birker and Inga read from the Message Bible. In Matthew, we find a story, a parable, You see, one of the things that's very clear in Scripture is that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the proclamation of the Word of God, the Word of Christ. That's why preaching is important. And so at the end of the day, Jesus is preaching, Paul is preaching, Moses has been preaching, and this is the story, the sermon, if you will. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. Let's just unpack that for a second. In what we've studied so far, Abraham believed and it was what? Credited to him as righteousness. He heard and sat in Ur and said, well, that's nice. He heard and married three more wives and sat in Ur and had multiple children and said, the Lord's word is fulfilled to me. No. He heard and went to a land he knew not. He heard and though it was unprecedented, because he was old and his wife was old, and her womb was dead, the scripture says, she bore him a son laughter, Isaac, and fulfilled the word of the Lord. He believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Before him, we talked about Noah. 
Noah received the word of the Lord. He believed, and he said, we'll just see if the flood really comes. He believed and he started the project, but he got bored and went back to his regular business. He believed and he built the boat, but he decided that really there was no God and he was having hallucinations because he had been through so much difficulty. He couldn't get the city to give him a permit. When he finally got a permit, okay. He built the boat. He opened its doors to the animals God let in. And he took all who would believe and go with him. Unfortunately, only his immediate family. Eight mouths to feed in this time of storm. And he was spared. Never says Noah was perfect. It never said Noah was everything he should have been. It never says Abraham was perfect or that he was everything he should have been according to our customs and standards anyway. He believed, he acted on that belief, and it was all that God required of him. Why is that so hard for us to do? (laughs) I know it's hard for me. Jesus says the same thing. Believe and put it into practice. If anyone hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, he's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And this is a small r because it's a parable. The rain comes down, the streams rise, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Small r. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Well, I don't think it takes a very high IQ to figure this one out. You build your house upon sand, it doesn't have anything to rest upon. You build it upon rock or bedrock, and short of a massive, massive earthquake, it's there to stay. And the small r is a metaphor for the big r. He is your rock, your salvation. God is your rock. Christ is your rock. And if you hear and practice the life built upon faith in Jesus is the life built upon the rock, capital R. A life built on hearing and not receiving. A life built on hearing and not believing. A life built on hearing and not acting is a life built on sand. And it cannot stand. This is the word of the Lord. When we turn to Corinthians, and that would have been a good place to stop, but I do want to go to one more. I just like to fool you every now and then. Oh, good, we get to sing the doxology and go home. I'm hungry. Uh, But I, I, I have to go to what James and Susan read briefly.
Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, recites the story of Moses, doesn't he? And I want you to hear his twist on it, because it's fabulous. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that that our forefathers were under the cloud, and that they passed through the sea. Now this is where it gets really, really interesting. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, that is a very, very odd thing to say, isn't it? Aren't we baptized into Christ? And yet I love what Paul does with this. What is a cloud? What's it made of? Water. They're under the cloud of Moses. They're with Moses in this. They participate together in the redemption God has brought. Deliverance from Egypt to freedom and Canaan. They participate in the deliverance of God. They're baptized into it. They all ate the same spiritual food. Wait a minute, I thought it was manna. I thought it was quail. Boy, vegetarians are in trouble on that one. The spiritual food is the manna and quail. Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. Jesus said... I am the bread of life. Paul has it straight. Whether we're talking about the symbol or whether we're talking about what the symbol points to, our life comes from these things. Our physical life comes from what we consume in food. Our spiritual life, what we drink and eat spiritually is what comes through Christ. They ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and Paul makes it plain, that rock was Christ. Now I'll quit. What are you going to build your life on. And so, Lord, may this spirit, this rock, be what we build our lives upon, this Christ, who is ours now and forevermore. Amen.